Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. We pray that everyone in this room could say that from the bottom of their heart. Uh, That's our hope today, that you can lift up your voice, sing that anthem, and that could be the genuine cry of your heart, that all you have is Christ. Jesus is your life. If you cannot sing that, that's because you're not in Christ, and you don't know the the life-saving power, the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would close with Christ today and make sure that you know that you are in Him. Turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 1. Today we are going to be reading one verse together, and that is verse 27. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 27, this is what the Word of God says. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. Let's pray one more time together. Father, we sang such marvelous words today. We sang such glorious truths that are so fitting in the context of what we have set before us here today, even in your word That all we have is Christ because He has redeemed us with justice. Jesus is our life because He saves the repentant ones with righteousness. That's what it's all about. It's just the gospel. That's what we're singing. And that's what we're expounding here today. Remind us, O Lord, that You are about the business of saving, redeeming for Yourself a people in your Son, Jesus Christ. And though it may not appear at first to us how you are doing that, we know, Lord, based on the testimony of your Word, that you are creating a new humanity right in our midst. You are creating a new humanity comprised of every tongue, tribe, nation, and people on planet Earth for your glory. And Lord, we pray that as we look into this redemption that we would be reminded today of Your will not only to redeem us, but to sanctify us and to make us fit for Your glory. And so Lord, we pray Your Word today would have its perfect work. Ask that You help us now, Lord. Give us Your good Spirit. Teach us and guide us. This is our request, Lord. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, you may be seated. One of the marvels of Reformed theology is hermeneutics. I remember the first time I came into the doctrines of grace when I came to understand the doctrines of the sovereignty of God, the depravity of man, the electing grace of God, the atoning efficacy of Jesus Christ, the perfect power to preserve God's people and that sovereignty created in me a really radical, uh, something of a crisis, really. I, re- I realized and I recognized that for so many years I had such a man-centered understanding of my life, of Christianity, of the world around me. It was totally anthropocentric. I thought man was the whole reason why existence exists. I thought we were the pinnacle of it all. 
truth be told, I thought I was the pinnacle of it all. I think we all are like that. I think we're sort of born Pelagian. I think it's a result of the fall. But when you gaze at what Reformed theology has come to teach us, that no, in fact, we are not living in a man-centered universe, as it were, but we are living in a God-centered universe, and that all things redound to the glory of God. And so what is the first article of the Reformed Confessions? Well, the chief end of man is to, is to, uh, uh, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So he stands as that eternal sun in the center of our solar system. And everything is for his glory. That is a mega shift in your theology when that happens. I remember being in a men's Bible study. I'll tell you a little funny story. Where a brother was, was, I was teaching systematic theology to a group of about 20 guys in a house somewhere. And uh, the doctrines of grace started settling in on a brother in the church. And he stood up started pacing back and forth, kind of a big guy. So we're like, whoa. He's like, wait a minute. If that is saying what I think it's saying, (laughs) it started dawning on him the sovereignty of God, the electing grace of God, the doctrine of predestination. And I know it's philosophically, it's challenging for anybody, whether you're a high-level theologian or whether you're just starting out in theology. Predestination is not easy. Election is not easy. But he started huffing and puffing back and forth. And he said, and we're just like, whoa, which way is this going to go? And he said, well, if that's what the Word of God says, then that's what it says. And he sat down. <laughs> we're like, whew, thank goodness you sat down. <laughs> I don't think all 20 of us could have constrained that guy. But it just shows us that the Word of God aims to change our understanding of Everything of reality, of salvation, of redemption, of the order of salutis and the historia salutis. The order of salvation, the logic of salvation, and the history of salvation. And how the history of salvation is unfolding progressively throughout redemptive history. And this passage here now presents to us another occasion upon which a mega shift will might take place in your theology. And that is the identity of Zion. Who is Zion? Zion will be redeemed with justice. And so we have work to do before we get to that crucial point. But what I want to tell you is as we approach this text and the surrounding context, we are going to approach it on two levels. And I think this is correct. We're going to approach Zion from a historical level and we're going to approach Zion from a messianic level level. And I think that's the key that will get us there. Number one, on the historical level, of course, Zion was just a synonym for Jerusalem. Jerusalem is Zion, and that's what Zion, the mountain of the Lord, is all about. And the house rests on Zion, or the mountain of the Lord. And so it's called the house of the mountain of the Lord in chapter 2, verse 3. And that means the temple sitting in the city of Jerusalem. And so no mystery there. Zion is equivalent to Jerusalem, as it were. And so from the historical level, you understand that what God is saying here is that there's coming a day in which Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, that is, and the city of Jerusalem, contained within Judah, that southern kingdom, 
they will undergo some sort of restoration, some sort of renewal, some sort of redemption, where God is going to bring the people back out of captivity. Because remember, already desolations have been determined upon Zion. It talks about the fact in verse 7, the land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, and your fields, strangers are devouring them in your midst. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard. So in other words, the city, Jerusalem, uh, 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 the people of Jerusalem will undergo a great desolation, and that's exactly what happened. It happened partially under the Assyrians. Assyrians came, made war with Judah, and they experienced a certain level of destruction, but not total. It wasn't total until Babylon came in. And Babylon came in and utterly destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, grabbed its people, and carried them off beyond the river Euphrates into Mesopotamia, i.e. Babylon. But that restoration is just a picture But we don't want to undermine the historical process. Here, turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 10. Because at the historical level, Zion will experience a temporal redemption from temporal captivity. And it will be awesome. It will be devastating. And it will be awesome. God's judgment will be seen in the midst of this restoration process. Look at what the prophet says. 10 verse 20. Now, in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them. Keep that in mind. But will truly rely upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. Verse 24 is crucial. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you and the rod and, uh, with the rod and lifts up the staff against you the way that Egypt did. For in a little while, my indignation against you will be spent and my anger will be directed toward their destruction. So there's coming a time in which Zion's redemption will be cast in the language of an Assyrian destruction. And that's the fulfillment. The fulfillment is God is going to redeem a people out of captivity, Zion, and He will strike those who struck His people. And that's fulfilled in Assyria. But that's not the end of the story. So at a historical level, God's acts of temporal redemption and his acts of temporal judgment, they sort of operate on this ethnic, what we could call geophysical, I mean geography and physical uh, a manif- uh, a sort of um, a fulfillment on that level. And it was, it was, but, but this is just a small indication of a much greater redemption still. Returning from exile was not the deepest redemptive concept of the prophet's oracle here. We only get to the deeper conception at the messianic level. In Romans chapter 11, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 59 to substantiate the fact that there is a redemption left for Zion. 
But if the redemption took place under Assyria, what is Paul talking about? Well, because, he says, a redeemer will arise in Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And so, right there, we are alerted to the fact that although this temporal historical fulfillment was real, it was awesome, it resulted in a real redemption of a real people and a real judgment and a real destruction of a real nation in, tempor- in temporal, real history. It was all pointing to something even greater than that. Zion's redemption will be truly, fully, and completely fulfilled once Christ comes. I think that's simple enough. And as Romans 11 is teaching, that redemption, that Zion, that deliverer is redeeming a new humanity of both Jew and Gentile, what Paul calls in Ephesians chapter 2, the new man. It's a new man, no longer just comprised of ethnic Jews, but now comprised of every tribe, tongue, and nation. See, it all goes together. One of the great disadvantages of earthly, uh, excuse me, earthly, well, it's earthly, but early uh, biblical theology, it's not the kind of biblical theology that I've been teaching here at church and that we teach here at church for a long time, sort of going through the meta narrative of Scripture and all of that. Early biblical theologians, don't lose me here, early biblical theologians began to teach that what we need to do is we need to examine the theology of individual authors and individual books and not allow other authors and other books to influence that author and that book. Sounds objective, right? The problem with that is that there were that, that whole modus operandi was was operating on a, gra- on a grand assumption. And that is a denial of the divine authorship of Scripture. That lying behind the human authors, Paul, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Peter, Matthew, Mark, Luke, behind the human author is one divine author that is orchestrating it all for his glory. You know why? Because early biblical theology was 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 born out of the soil of liberalism. And liberalism, if it taught us anything, taught us that supernatural claims were, were, were simply uh, academically unacceptable. And so what you have is you have liberalism saying things like, well, just to, let's use our book, for example, Isaiah. Well, Isaiah can't possibly be written by one Isaiah, you know, like the prophet Isaiah. Of course not. We know that Isaiah, there's, there's probably at least two authors to Isaiah, probably a community of redactors that actually wrote the book of Isaiah and slapped his name on it. Why? Because Isaiah contains biblical prophecy, and biblical prophecy is not allowed when you're a liberal. Because you don't believe in supernaturalism. And so you have to account for it in some sort of naturalistic explanation. And so on and on, the liberal wars kind of rolled on. But biblical theology was done in that way initially, where the first thing to do is to determine, well, what is Isaiah teaching? And don't use anything else. Is that really the way that we're supposed to read the Bible? I don't think so. I think the Bible is to be read canonically, meaning 
Alpha and Omega, Genesis to Revelation. You take the totality of Scripture together. As Paul says, I did not shy away from you in declaring the whole counsel of God. We are to take the whole counsel of God together and show that it's all one progressive, organic, unified, whole. All of Scripture speaks with one voice. Uh, biblical evidence for that, for example, would be like passages like Luke chapter 24, verses 26 and 27, and then Luke chapter 24, verse 44 and following, where Jesus there says, beginning with Moses, that is the law. So where does Moses begin? Genesis. Beginning with Moses and with the prophets and the, and the, and the law, right, and the Psalms, right? He began to explain to them all the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Whoa. Wow. So all the scriptures unify together to teach Christology. Interesting. And then another passage of scripture that has been greatly undermined, Acts chapter 7, the sermon of Stephen. Just read the sermon of Stephen before. This guy preached a sermon on biblical theology before he was martyred to death. (laughs) Wow. God give us strength. But he taught an elaborate history of supernatural revelation, the history of redemption going all the way back to the patriarchs, unfolding all the way through the theocracy, through the kingdoms, through the prophets, and arriving at Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Wow! And so for the authors of Scripture, for Stephen, for uh, Peter, I can think of so many Scriptures, for Luke, for everyone, they understood the coherence of of Scripture, the continuity and, and, and it was clear for them to do that. And so at the messianic level, what we find is that Zion becomes code for the people of God. Matter of fact, when we think of what Zion actually means, what we find is that this is a multi-pronged uh, uh, word. Zion can refer to the historical city of Jerusalem. Zion sometimes in Hebrew idiom means the people of Jerusalem. Zion sometimes means heaven. And then Zion sometimes means the people that are redeemed in Jesus Christ, which would be the elect. You see now? So Zion is like a multidimensional word. It serves the purpose of God's redemption, and that's why he uses it in the way that he uses it. It's marvelous when you start to see like a... You ever seen a diamond... You put it behind that black, you know, uh, leather suede or whatever, and you just turn that diamond, you see all the glistening going on everywhere. That's kind of like what Zion is. It's a diamond that you have to turn to see all the cuts and the facets and all the beautiful shades and colors of what it is. And that's what Zion is. And so, therefore, we can, from the messianic level, preach this text referring to you and to me. That's the point. The point is that Isaiah chapter 1 is written for us. It's not just looking back at the 7th century B.C. and going, wow, what an interesting time that must have been. And what are some moralistic principles that we can derive from that? No, no, no. This redemption is for us. And so let me show you the way that I think this works. On the messianic level, what we find, therefore, is that Jesus Christ, in the interest of redemption for his people, is confronting his people with their sin. He is sanctifying the people's souls, and he is providing victory over the people's enemies. This is what Jesus does. And hopefully this will become increasingly clear. The very first thing, look with me back at verse 21. 
Number one, Christ confronts us with our sin. This is because he is holy. This is because God is holy. And because God is holy, he doesn't allow his people to simply engage in their depravity unconfronted. Verse 21, yeah. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness, once lodged in her, but now murderers. Now, verse 21 is telling us that there was a period of time in history where under David or Solomon or Jehoshaphat, we saw a general righteousness in the nation. The nation was somewhat faithful to God. And then what do you find in the history of the kings? First, second kings, first, second chronicles, right? You find a series of kings and uh, Ahaz did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, right? And so you have a history of evil kings that began to dilute and to diminish the covenant faithfulness of the people until at last the people become so apostate as we saw that they are no longer, uh, they are no longer faithful to the Lord it says, your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water, your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves, everyone loves a bribe. It's like everywhere in the city that you looked at this period in time, what happened was that every nook and cranny of the city was just filled with underhanded, shady business deals, uh, corrupt politicians, just, you know, everywhere. You just see a, a bribe. It was kind of like this. Remember Joseph telling me a testimony of being missionary in Mexico, and he said one time a police, this is how corrupt the cops are in Mexico. Some of you know this. Pulled jo- Joseph Urban, you know, he's a, about a 90-pound missionary, little white kid from Ohio. <laughs> Real threat, right? <laughs> Federales pulled him over, and they said, uh, they knock on his window. Roll your window down. He said, uh, what are you doing? Nothing, just going home. Okay, all in Spanish. He said, okay, um, what are you going to give me? What? I'm not giving you anything. What are, what are you talking about? The police officer tells, uh, kind of, is it right to call him a police officer at this point? He says, I'm going to give you some time to think about it. I'm going to go sit in my car. I'm going to come back and have something ready for me. So Joseph said, I had nothing. I literally had not a dime on me. So he sat there for 20 minutes just twiddling his thumbs. I don't know what I'm going to give this cop. I got nothing. So the cop comes back and says, okay, what do you have for me? Nothing. So he gave him this long, it's like that, totally corrupt, totally just infiltrated with corruption from top to bottom. And that's what Israel had become. It had been totally corrupted. And so all of this corruption that we see from top to bottom, from the rulers to the priests to the kings to the people themselves, every neighbor against his neighbor, what does it do but prepare us, brothers and sisters, for the ethics of the kingdom? What right do we have to do this? Here, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning of verse 25. This is the inner textuality of the Bible. Ready? When Paul wants to teach you and I how to be a better Christian, you know what he does? He depends on the prophets. Matter of fact, he quotes, in a similar context here, he quotes the, the, the prophet Zechariah who's actually sort of giving us a parallel to the redemption of Zion here in Zechariah chapter 8. But in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, a passage that you and I know very well, it is rooted and grounded in Zion. Therefore, laying aside falsehood. See, this is what, this is what Zion needs. It's what the people needed. 
speak truth to one another, to uh, speak truth each of you to his neighbor, quoting directly from Zechariah. Isn't that fascinating? For we are all members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals is to steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. And we can keep reading on and on and on. And then Ephesians chapter 4 is a parallel of Colossians chapter 3 and other passages like that that teaches what does it mean to be the new man, to have the new self upon yourself. You know where all that theology came from, from for Paul? It came from Zion. It came from Isaiah. It came from Zechariah. Why? Because the redemption that they were envisioning was a new covenant age in which the Messiah, through the Spirit, is renewing His people. Hallelujah? I, that sounded pretty Pentecostal. Sorry, but... I didn't know what else to say after that. It's just because it's exciting to see that I can turn to Zechariah chapter 8. What do you know about Zechariah chapter 8? Come on, be honest. I don't know anything about Zechariah chapter 8. And I've studied it before. (laughs) I can't remember right now. But to know Zechariah 8 has to do with me. Zechariah 8 is prophesying of a time where the kingdom of God will be filled with the ethics of a, of a better kingdom than Jesus gave us. And therefore, He doesn't just want to confront us with our sin, let Him who steals, steal no more, but He also wants to sanctify our souls through a vital union, a vital communion with God. This is so glorious. This is so wonderful. And so, this transformation, this sanctification, where do I'm pulling this from? Look at verse 25 of of uh, Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, beginning verse 25. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross with lie. I will remove all your alloy. In other words, the people of God have to go through a refining process. It's like the song that we sang. I asked the Lord that I might grow. How many of you, that was the first time you ever heard that song? Anyone? Oh, a lot of you. Well, let me see here. Landon's getting scared right now. What's he doing? I'm exegeting. I ask the Lord that I might grow. Why? Because we don't sing songs like this anymore in the church. That's why. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Lord, please sanctify me. Grow me. Um, uh, right? What do we say? I, uh, uh, he, here I am, Lord. And then it says... I hope that in some favored hour, he says, at once he, he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, he would simply subdue my sins and give me rest. That's what we want. Instead of this, instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. You're not going to find that in a secret sensitive church down the street. Sorry. Let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Why? Why does he do it? Such that the, the, the hymnist says, please, he seems intent to aggravate my woe. You ever feel like that in the Christian life? 
just seems like God's aggravating my will. Things are getting worse, not better. Think of Adonine Judson. There he is among the Burmese Indians. And he's been laboring as a missionary. He's doing missionary work. Gets arrested. Cops beat him, throw him out in the rice paddies, chain him up to a pole. He gets devoured by mosquitoes all night. Hey, what, what, what happened to the favor of the Lord? What happened to your best life now? What happened to God wanting you to be wealthy, healthy, and prosperous? Tell that to Ironitum Judson out there at 3 o'clock in the morning getting eaten by mosquitoes. And let me tell you, I speak as one who hates mosquitoes. I believe they are demon-possessed. <laughs> That's how bad I hate them. And then the Lord replied like this, I answer prayer for grace and faith. See, what God cares about more than anything, Landon, you're okay, man. <laughs> You'll be all right. I'll, turn, I'll even put it on the page you had it on. There you go. I told Jonathan back there, it's like, I got to exegete the song we just sang. It's right. Because God wants to smelt away our dross. Once again, this language of the refiner's fire is then picked up by the New Testament authors like Peter. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, so I could just read it to you. In this you greatly rejoice, 1 Peter 1, 6. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, if you're a missionary in Burma, it might be necessary that you be distressed by various trials. You don't need to be a missionary, no. You just got to be a Christian sometimes, right? Go through stuff. Go through trials. Go through sickness and disease or persecution at work or persecution from your family or persecution from your spouse or your children even. I've heard such crazy stories. So that what? The proof of your faith. There it is. I answer prayer, I answer prayer for faith and grace. See that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Faith is what I care about. You know, the Lord's, I don't care what kind of house you live in, what kind of car you drive, how much money you're making. I don't care. I don't care what kind of food you eat. I, you know, within reason. But, he says, what I care about most of all is your faith. That's what I care about. Why? Because it's more precious than gold. See, in the eyes of God, it is your faith that is valuable beyond belief. And therefore, what does the, what does the enemy want to do? What does the serpent want to do? What does the lion want to do? He wants to devour your faith. Because he knows that is what God cares about. He cares about your faith. So he'll let you, sometimes the enemy, he'll let you have all the money and the material things that you want. Who cares? As long as your faith is shriveling away. Mission accomplished. He says your faith will be tested by fire. So that it might be found to result in praise and glory, honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Zion does not have right now. Exactly what the people don't have right now. And therefore, Judah and Jerusalem have to be purged. And so God aims to remove all of our impurities and sins and vices until ultimately we are unalloyed and our old man is set aside. A process of smelting that will not be complete, of course, until the brightness of His coming. 
1 John 3, 1 through 3. Then we will be as he is when he appears. Right now, what's going on, brothers and sisters, is that you and I are being transformed. Look with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Zion and the Old Covenant was pointing towards Zion and the New Covenant. The people of God and the New Covenant that will undergo this kind of radical transformation. And what is missing is the Spirit in His people. The Spirit. We'll see this in a moment again, but one of the fatal flaws that Israel made was this. Just by virtue of the fact that I am Israel automatically means I get the promises. I get the blessings. I get, you know, the privileges of the covenant. No! That's, that, that, that's, that's a big mistake. We are transformed because we have the Spirit. We are transformed by the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. You know what's remarkable about that chapter? Let me turn there myself, I suppose. Second uh, Corinthians chapter three is all about how the old covenant and the new covenant relate, and there's not a single old covenant quote in this passage. You see one? I don't. But just because there's not an old covenant quote, that does not mean that Paul is not interacting with the Old Testament. Oh, he is. And sometimes he does that without directly quoting the Old Testament. And that's what theologians and exegetes and scholars would call an illusion, an echo going back to some passage. And sometimes those illusions are very explicit and sometimes they're more nuanced. But it is explicit. How do you know? Because in verse 7, we are talking about the face of Moses that was fading in its glory as Moses returns from the mountain, Exodus 34. He doesn't need to quote Exodus 34. He just gives you the reality of what happened there. And what he's saying is that that whole Old Testament economy was fading even at its inception. Even when the covenant was forged with Moses, and he came down the mountain with the law, his face was glowing, and it was glorious. It was so glorious that the children of Israel were fearful of Moses. But as glorious as that was, the glory began to fade as a symbol that the glory was transient. It was transitional. It was never meant to be permanent. But what does it say about the new covenant Christian, beloved? Look at verse 18. He says, But we as opposed to Moses. We with unveiled face. Wow. We are beholding as in a mirror, a mirror, a mirror, a mirror, the glory of the Lord. Listen. And we are being transformed into the same image. What image? The image in the mirror. From glory to glory. Just as from the Lord, the Spirit. You know how many hours I spent on that last clause? The Lord, the Spirit. I've bought books just to answer that verse. Not even the verse, just the clause. Because I think what Paul is doing there is he's saying that Jesus, the Lord, that's the antecedent in verse 17, is the Spirit. Not ontologically, but functionally, come ask me after the service, one by one. 
It's a little profound. But then again, the exegesis here is absolutely profound. It's deep. It's hard. It's why commentators battle back and forth, try to give you... There's five views on how this exegesis, the Greek grammar here, works. And there's a reason why. It's because it's not so much a grammatical issue. It's a theological issue, and that's what makes it rigorous. How is it that he is calling Jesus the Spirit? Well, not in any ontological way. He didn't say Jesus is the Spirit, but he is, the spi- he is labeled the Spirit by the fact that he now functionally is in perfect union with the Spirit, and he gives it to his people, and he sanctifies his people with the Spirit. Oh, there's so much here. There's just so much here. God seeks to redeem his people, uh, to sanctify his people, and he will do this by virtue of the fact that you and I are now part of a new Zion. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Because any restoration language of Zion that was partially fulfilled, and we know this already. When will it be fulfilled, this restoration? that, On a historical level, it's fulfilled in the prophets. Haggai, it's fulfilled in Zechariah. So Haggai chapter 2, Zechariah chapter 4. Zerubbabel will rebuild the temple. Okay, And so we're going to see a visible historical restoration that was prophesied right here by Isaiah. But to remind us that this has a future effect, look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 says this, But you have come to Mount Zion. So in the New Covenant, there is a a fresh approach to Zion. There is a new, what we could call an eschatological arrival at the summit of a new and better mountain, i.e. Zion. To the city of the living God. To the heavenly Jerusalem, myriads of angels to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn. Those are the saints, not Christ, because that's plural, not singular. You can't see that in English, but firstborn is saints who are enrolled in heaven. And so if there's a heavenly role, there's got to be an earthly role, church role. That's what I mean, church membership. Come on. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. That last part right there. If I had a commentary on the book of Hebrews, I would call it better than Abel. You know why? Because it shows how the, the, the blood of Jesus in the new covenant goes all the way through all the scripture. Just think of a, like a, a thread that is woven through all the scripture until you get back to Genesis chapter 4 there and, and, and you see you know, Cain killing his brother Abel. But, and then the blood of Abel cried out for justice, justice, justice for Abel. And the blood of Jesus doesn't just cry out for justice. It cries out for mercy, mercy, mercy. For his people. Isn't that beautiful? I think it's just glorious. I spend all day on this stuff. Uh, again, the error of Israel is to think that just because they are ethnic Israel, they are automatically given the privileged status and will realize the promises that are given to them. But what does Isaiah say here? No, 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 no. This redemption, this redemption is a redemption of justice. 
And who is it for? It is for the penitent ones. The repentant ones. Literally, the Hebrew shuv, the turning ones. It's the ones who turn. And there's a play on words here, I believe, in the Hebrew text because the shuv can refer to those who return from exile and those who turn in their hearts by faith to the Lord. Marvelous. Ah, Prophets are incredible. But this is not new. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil. Verse 19, if you consent and obey, then you will eat the best of the land. In other words, it is prerequisite for you to come into the promises to see the fulfillment of this restoration that you repent. Does that remind you of anything? Yeah, the gospel. If you repent and believe, you will be saved. And that's what we find all throughout Scripture. That's one of the things I try to do in the film Unpopular is to try to really stress the true nature of repentance because the word repentance has, be, has, has been forgotten in many people's gospels presentations. You know, this is kind of like what we do even in church membership. We ask you what your understanding of the gospel is and we're really fishing for, do you understand the gospel of repentance and faith? Or is the gospel just, well, just love God? Uh, it's not false, but it's not the gospel. Well, just go to church. These are actual answers I've had during church membership. Well, the gospel is the Bible. Well, yeah, it's in the Bible. (laughs) But you know what I mean. We need to articulate repentance and faith in Jesus Christ because that's what God requires of everyone. Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Finally, not only will he not only will he confront us of our sins, sanctify our souls, but he will also triumph over all of our enemies. Now you saw this already, but in verse uh, 25, the prophet or uh, 24, the prophet has already intimated this. He says, "Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, "Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes." Now jump down to verse 28. If you are not one of the penitent ones, verse 28, if you are not a repentant one, transgressors and sinners will be crushed together and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you've desired and you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. It's that kind of language that puts people off from the prophets. You read it and you're like, I don't understand what that means. I'm thinking of like a garden and stuff like that. You're not wrong only to understand that when the prophet utilizes the language of oak and garden, what he's trying to, uh, uh, in, in that day, it was, it was uh, referring to uh, the stations of idolatry, the posts of pagan shrines that they had been worshiping. And many of those shrines, now listen to this, many of those shrines were built in paradisical environments like Eden. Wow. Think of the depth of the apostasy and the perversion of Zion that it had allowed for Edenic sanctuaries to worship a false god. This is how deep the sin of Israel and Judah had become. It's just mind-blowing. But because of that, one day they will be ashamed of the very work of their hands. He says the strong man will become tinder, his work also a spark, and they will 
both burn together and there will be none to quench them. In other words, even as on a historical level, the people that did not repent and trust in the Lord died. They died in war. They died in battle. They died under the judgment of God. They perished. They did not return from the land or to the land. And in a similar way, at the end of the age, what's going to happen? There will be another judgment, another separation of the sheep and the goats. There will be another great separation of the penitent ones and those who rebel, those who transgress. And they will be cast into outer darkness. As a matter of fact, Jesus repeatedly speaks about the fire that will not be quenched. Because he knew that the language of the prophets was merely speaking of a greater and far more devastating judgment. What we need, brothers and sisters, therefore, is to be in Christ. That is what true redemption is all about. One more application. One more application. When the Bible says Zion will be redeemed, I'm going to ask you guys, what does the word redemption mean? What does the word redeem mean? The, or the literal meaning of that word is to purchase. It means to buy. It really means to buy back from something. So it fits perfect in the language of captivity. You're bought out, right? It's like you're freed from slavery. And so I bring this up only to say that if this redemption applies to the new, the new covenant believer, and it does, what does that mean for us now? Turn with me in your Bibles to one more place. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. To be redeemed literally means to be purchased by God. So on a practical note, what that means for every last one of us is that we are His. We are His. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. Why? Because you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Basically, brothers and sisters, this is telling us is that you and I in the kingdom of God, we have no rights. He's the master. We are the slave. He is our Lord. We do His bidding. We belong to Him. Uh, we, we, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a beautiful submission. It's like a, it's like a wonderful bondage. We are bound to him. We are, we are gladly, voluntarily willing to submit to his lordship. Paul says in Romans chapter six that we are no longer slaves of sin, but now we are slaves. You're no longer a slave of sin. That doesn't mean you're not a slave at all. That means now your slavery has changed. You are no longer a doulos of sin. Now you're a doulos of righteousness. And so herein lies the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That to be redeemed means that we have been put squarely beneath the lordship of Jesus Christ over all of our lives. And that's the trick. You know, that's the trick. No, I got one more verse. That's the trick. The trick is... If he is Lord, then I am his servant, I am his friend and his servant, and I am to please him. I am I'm to be pleasing to him. 
And so in the beautiful words of the prophet Micah, who was a contemporary with Isaiah, it just sums up what we're to do. He has told you, O man, what is good. Isn't that so glorious? God has already told us. (laughs) You want to know what God wants? How many people out there in in the church are looking for the will of God? Right? God, what does God want for me? What does God want for my life? He's already told you what is good, what is acceptable to Him. What does God require of you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? One of the, one of the crucial sins of Israel we're going to find in this book is pride. They're so prideful they don't care for the orphan, they don't care for the widow. They're so prideful, they're living, remember in Isaiah's time, they're living high on the hog. No time for the little people. Wow. Well, those little people have now in the kingdom of God become the brethren that we take care of in the church, mainly. It doesn't mean we can't minister to the poor outside of the church. Uh, But the poor, really, that the New Testament has in view is the poor in the church, Um. That's what Acts, what Paul was doing in Acts. Remember, he was taking care of the poor. What poor? All the poor in the Roman Empire? No. The poor Christians in Jerusalem. Galatians makes that clear. But still, the, the heart of kindness, the heart of humility, this can only be done through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus by His Spirit. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess now that there is still so much of the redeemed life that we need to live, that we need to grow in. And we understand that positionally we are in Him and we are secure. And He holds us in His hand and no one can snatch us out of His hand. No one can take us out of the hand of God. And yet, that security May we not, like Israel, assume that because we're secure positionally that we automatically are secure progressively in our sanctification. But we still have to heed the call to walk in a righteous way, in in a way that is clothed with kindness and humility and in a way that is pleasing to you. As Paul says, that we may please you in all respects. This is not of our own doing. And so, Lord, remind us that this can only happen by a work of transformation wrought by the Spirit of God in the heart of your people. Help us, O Lord, to walk in that today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.